I was kind of, as you might be surprised to see me up here, I was very surprised as well. <laughs> this is new. <laughs> but I'm excited, guys. This is, this is going to be a good morning. Grateful God in his sovereignty and providence allowed me to share, try to encourage you this morning from his word. Um, our text this morning is going to be Psalm 73. So if you want to turn there. So most of us have probably heard the term, <clears throat> spoiler alert, Okay, so spoiler alert is a warning that you're about to find critical information about the ending of a story or a movie. It's a warning. Some movies, some shows start this way. They'll start with maybe like the last scene. So you kind of get a little glimpse of what the ending is going to be like. Studies have shown that some people actually prefer to know the ending of a movie before they even start one, which I don't understand that, but it's one of the studies. But friends, when it comes to being a Christian and facing the trials that come as a follower of Christ, knowing the ending to our story is everything. Life can be immensely hard, full of trials. Things can blindside us, come out of nowhere. It is in those life-shaking, life-altering moments we are tempted to doubt God's goodness and his plans for us. So friends, again, knowing the ending of our story is crucial to our endurance. Friends, as I read Psalm 73, I was just thanking God for his grace in allowing this psalm to be in the Bible. If you're not familiar with the psalms or you're new to reading the Bible, the psalms are the human experience. How kind of God to allow the Psalms to be in the canon of Scripture. You can flip to any Psalm and you see the psalmist crying out in some type of emotion, in some particular way. We can relate with these Psalms, these psalmists, and what they're going through. So friends, would you please join in with me as I read Psalm 73 to us. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, they say, how can God know is there knowledge in the Most High? 
Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they were destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Lord, would you encourage us from your word? Or would you give me the strength to preach truth? We love you, O Lord. In Christ's name, amen. So just some brief context. Who is Asaph? He's the author of this psalm. Asaph, in short, he was a, a worship leader assigned to King David to play instruments and lead the temple choir. Asaph was a Levite, which meant that he came from a line of priests. Asaph served under the reign of King David and also King Solomon. In summary, Asaph, he was a temple worshiper set apart to lead God's people in thanksgiving and praise. He was like a Zach, <laughs> leading people every Sunday. And he's saying these things? That should encourage us, right? He was a holy man. So for our text this morning, just to help us organize the text, I have four observations. The first one is the psalmist's conviction. Verse 1 and 2. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. When the psalmist here is talking about Israel, he is talking of God's covenanted people. For the modern reader like us, that means us. Those who have covenanted with God, who have put their faith and hope in Christ. 
We are the covenanted people of God. We've been grafted in to his sovereign plan. God has shown himself to be good to Israel, even in the midst of their past of idolatry, idolatry and worship. God continues to show himself faithful to Israel, even when they were unfaithful to him. The psalmist here encourages us, encourages the pure in heart to join him in praying through their negative emotions and in hoping in God's goodness. The pure are not perfect, but live in loyalty to God in speech and action, thus evidencing their pure motive. They are without hypocrisy. The real notion here is that the pure in heart do not speak or act out of hypocrisy. Their hearts, though wounded at times, still trust God. In Asaph's day, it was common for corrupt religious leaders and unfaithful uh, common people to appear pure because they were ceremonially clean, meaning they looked great on the outside but were terrible on the inside. Their hearts were wicked. We even see this in the New Testament in Jesus' day. Think of the Pharisees. The heart actually occurs in six instances in this psalm. The place of the heart is most important. Out of it overflows everything, right? The commentator Martin Buber writes, the state of the heart determines whether a man lives in truth in which God's goodness is experienced or in the appearance of truth. The state of the heart determines it. Verse 2 says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. In the first part of this verse, Asaph says, God is good. He confesses that this was not always the firm conviction of his heart. Again, remember, Asaph was a holy man leading God's covenanted people in worship and in the reading of the scriptures. I can imagine Asaph saying this and writing this with a heavy heart, knowing that he almost fell beyond the point of no return, beyond reach. He had almost allowed himself to go into that hole of doubt. You can almost get a sense of gratefulness in these first two verses as he recounts God's mercy in his moment of crisis. Friends, there is unmeasured hope in these first two verses. Can we say with the psalmist this morning that God is good? Look at your life. Look at what's going on. Look at what you experienced yesterday. Maybe it's a chronic illness. Maybe it's a chronic mental health condition. Condition. Maybe it's a, a lingering habitual sin that you have been begging God to take from you. Regardless of the state of our hearts this morning, I pray that as we study this psalm, we would experience 
and be reassured that God is supremely good. Because at the end of the day, when circumstances cause us to doubt God's goodness, it is in fact his goodness that assures us. My second observation this morning, the psalmist's descent. Here begins Asaph's recounting of how his feet had almost stumbled. How they nearly slipped. Asaph's crisis of the heart began with envy. He desired what the wicked or ungodly had. In the following verses, we see that the wicked or ungodly were all well fed. They were not stricken or oppressed like others in mankind, maybe as Asaph might have been feeling. They wear pride and self-exaltation as a necklace. Their eyes swell with fatness, which means a heart made insensitive because of overindulgence. They mock and speak maliciously, threatening oppression of the poor. Friends, as we read a few of these verses, as we see his explanation of the corrupt and, and wicked, it's a lot like what we live in today, right? Especially as, you, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, trying to lead your family well through the convictions of Scripture. You're being pulled in every direction by culture. Constantly being berated with temptations to compromise on your convictions. It gets tough. It gets hard sometimes. For Asaph, verses 9 through 12 seems to be the pinnacle of his anger and bitterness. Because the arrogant and ungodly are making a mockery of God. For Asaph, this is insanely unsettling. He cannot comprehend why they still uh, prosper and thrive in the midst of such mockery. Verse 13, 14 says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I am stricken and rebuked every morning. Have you ever said that? Maybe in different words. God, I've been trying to keep myself pure. But I seem to always be getting hit with something. Why am I sick? Why is my mental health crumbling? Why can't I pay my bills? Why am I getting mocked at work? Why has my son or my daughter walked away from you? All in vain, God, I've kept myself clean.
Charles Spurgeon speaks of verse 13 so well. He says, poor Asaph. He questions the value of holiness when its wages are paid in the coin of affliction. Poor Asaph. He questions the value of his holiness when its wages are paid in the coin of affliction. If you know anything about Spurgeon, his life was stricken with turmoil. Physical illness. He was ridiculed by everyone in England and his culture for standing for truth, not compromising. His whole ministry almost got taken from him, which was vast. So I'm sure he found comfort in Psalm 73. As I read this psalm, I can feel the despair of Asaph. Again, this was coming from a man who was set apart to lead Israel in shouts of joy and thanksgiving. I imagine him writing this with a broken heart. He feels that the God he loves has abandoned him. He's crying out to God, saying, Lord, are you watching? Do you remember me? Have you left me? I'm suffering down here. When will you bring justice? There's also a story, many of you are aware of this story, but I'll share it again in case you aren't, but Horatio Spafford, he's the writer of the hymn, It Is Well. There's a few things about Horatio Spafford's life. He lost his youngest son to pneumonia. Now, he, was a, he wasn't a pastor, wasn't a worship leader, nothing like that. He was just a godly man. I believe he was in Moody's church in Chicago, D.L. Moody the great evangelist. But he was just a businessman, just uh, a common believer. His youngest son at a young age died of pneumonia. He lost his four daughters on a shipwreck over the Atlantic. He had planned to join them in just a few days. His suffering was unthinkable. And it was at the very site where his daughters had died where he, he wrote it as well. It's a very powerful hymn, especially when you understand the context of the man who wrote it. Friends, if you are in a situation this morning of sadness, brokenness, despair, maybe you're weary, you're weary of your health or fighting a particular sin or a struggle in your marriage. Maybe there's a conflict at work that is making you lose sleep. Whatever it may be, there's a few verses here that I just want to encourage you with. Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before God, for he is a refuge for us. Pour out your heart before him, 
For God is a refuge for us. Romans 8, 37 through 39. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, we go to his word when we are struggling. We must. There's no other way to find peace. God is working for his glory in your ultimate good in your present circumstance. Don't think for a second that your suffering or trial are in vain. Don't pray that prayer that Asaph prayed. It was not in vain. Moving on here, we see verse 15. We see that Asaph was unwilling to speak these things aloud to the people of God. He understood that his spoken words had weight. He did not want to deceive or deter the faith of others. He did not allow his crisis of faith to dictate his responsibilities as a leader of God's people. I thought that was interesting to note. Asaph, during his battle of faith, was honestly doubting what ultimately he did truly believe. He never abandoned his first statement in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel. There's a reason he started with that, right? Some may call this venting or something. But remember, friends, when circumstances cause us to doubt God's goodness, it is in fact his goodness that assures us, right? Third observation this morning. The psalmist's turning point, Asaph's turning point, verse 16 through 20. Verse 16 and 17 says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Notice it was not the yoga studio or the mountaintops or the bar or the coffee shop. Fill in the blank was not any of these things where Asaph found relief. It was in the sanctuary of God. How many of you have had a, come in here one Sunday morning having a terrible week? Maybe just something happened at work, in your personal life, and then you show up, and Zach opens us in worship, and it's like immediately it's gone away. Your perspective has been renewed. I feel like that's what Asaph is experiencing here. The outcome was ultimately for the wicked and for the ungodly. Justice was coming. Justice was coming. When he was met with the holiness of God and the greatness of God and the goodness of God, all of his doubts, all of his concerns were quieted for a moment. His perspective had been regained. Boyce in his commentary writes, another teacher has suggested that Asaph saw the altar upon which a fire was always burning and where the offerings for sin were consumed. 
The death of the sacrificial animal symbolized death as the end result of sin. And the fire could have reminded Asaph God's judgment, God's justice. Regardless of what Asaph actually experienced, we can know for sure that he had some kind of experience with God in the sanctuary. His encounter with God made a life-altering impression on him. His vision was refocused. He was reminded that all will be made right in the allotted time. Roy Clements, a pastor in Cambridge, England, links this new perspective of Asaph to worship when he says, worship puts God at the center of our vision. It is vitally important because it is the only, it's only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. It is only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. Brothers and sisters, where do you turn when your trials, your doubts, depression, anxiety, suffering come? You turn to the word? You turn to God's word? Or do you look inward? Do you look outside of, do you look at, you know, maybe something a friend can, can do? Or a circumstance or a drink or whatever it may be. Where do you go? We can find peace in his word. We really can. God in his grace has set up the church as a means of grace. We can experience him here through the preaching of God's word, through worship, through fellowship with a brother or sister. Verse 18 through 20, Asaph expounds on the outcome of the wicked. God opposing and arrogant. The ungodly will see destruction, even if it's not in this life. God will rise and he will take the seat of judgment, will hold the ungodly accountable. For Asaph, this is a reminder to him during his oppression at the time. There will be justice for the oppressed. This leads me to my final observation this morning. The psalmist's ascent. Asaph's ascent. Verses 21 through 28. Verse 21, 22, we read, When my soul was embittered, when my heart, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. We see a confession of Asaph. Asaph is saying that when his soul had been st struck with the dagger of bitterness, he had become like an animal toward God. He had felt like a monster in his thoughts, in his words, in his actions. I think we can relate with that. Some of us can relate with that this morning. When we're unsure of what God is doing in our life or we feel uh, a particular displeasure coming from God toward us. We may say things in our heart or in our mind 
And as we reflect back on those, we feel like a beast toward God, an animal toward God, especially when our vision has been refocused in the sanctuary of God. Asaph has a better awareness of himself in relation to God after his experience in his sanctuary. Spurgeon writes again, what a contrast is here in this, in the former verse. He is as a beast and yet continually with God. Our double nature, as it always causes conflict. So is it a continuous paradox. The flesh allies us with the brutes and the spirit affiliates us to God. Verse 23 through 25 reads, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. These three verses contain some of the sweetest truths in Scripture. Asaph recognizes that God had never left his side. If Asaph was left to himself, he would have turned his back on God. But we see in these verses that God's goodness upheld him in his crisis of faith. Verse 23 reminds us of God's tenderness towards his children. In my feeble attempt to emulate God's example as a father to my kids, as much as a sinner can do, I never want my daughter or my sons to ever doubt my love for them. But friends, we have this tender father in God who is gentle and kind to us. He holds our right hand when we lose our way. When we forget his goodness, when we act as a brute towards him, as an animal toward him, he holds our right hand. Friends, do not allow your current trial, your circumstance to blur the character of God in your mind and in your heart. Verse 24 reassures us that God's counsel and wisdom is ultimately the safest path for his children. We begin to understand this when we put an end to our own wisdom and trust his. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. God's path leads his children safely to the final destination, which is glory, where we will spend all of eternity with him. Heaven is not just a place that is free from the very presence of evil. It is free from the very presence of anxiety. It is free from the very presence of sexual sin, the temptations of this world. It is free from the presence of all those things that cripple us 
It is where Christ is, the lover of our souls, the one who paid it all for our rescue. We long for heaven. We long for that day because that is where we will meet our Savior face to face. Verse 26, Asaph's heart had failed him once and would continue to fail him. But there is so much grace and comfort in this verse. God would not fail him as the protection, as his protection or his joy. Like Asaph, let's join him in his proclamation of dependence this morning. God will not fail. Lastly, in the final two verses Asaph's psalm, of Asaph's psalm, he gives us a summary of what he has already previously stated. The ungodly and the unfaithful, meaning those who have sought other gods instead of the true God, will be brought to their knees at the final judgment. But as for Asaph, being near God is for his good. God is Asaph's refuge in the midst of soul-oppressing doubt and despair. Friends, we don't see God answering Asaph's questions in this psalm. We don't see him answer the questions to why the wicked prosper. and why the children of God suffer. But we do see that God gave Asaph something way better than an answer to his agony. God gives himself to Asaph. So friend, I would say that to you this morning. You may have a lot of questions for God. You may have some doubts, things you're unsure of. God, why am I going through this? I've really tried hard to keep myself pure. I've tried to set myself apart for you. I study your word. I believe that you're good. Why is my marriage failing? Why, why am I sick? Why do I have cancer? God most often doesn't answer these questions. But he gives us himself. He gives us his peace. He gives us Christ who takes our burdens, who takes our doubts. He's not intimidated by your doubts or your struggles, your fears. He leans into them. Christ became our substitute on the cross, he bore our shame so that we could make God our refuge and our help in time of need. So friends, spoiler alert, it ends good. The ending for you is good. You may be walking through one of the most difficult seasons in your life right now. 
But friends, the ending to this is good. You will conquer because Christ has conquered. We will be with him one day. We will be free of sin, free from the very presence of evil. We have a great hope in this. God will make things right again. He will make all things new. Knowing these things before the end is everything. And it assures us of God's goodness during the toughest times and the toughest circumstances that life will bring. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm. God, we thank you that we can have a psalm like this where we can pray. We can pray this psalm to you and you do not judge us. You encourage it. You encourage us to pray these things. You encourage us to pour our heart out before you so that you can remind us of your goodness, so that you can give us peace. So God, I pray this morning for us. Pray for those in this room that might be walking through a very hard time. Maybe it's been a, the whole year. Whatever it may be, God, I just pray that you would assure us this morning of your goodness, your peace. Give us hope. Allow our vision to be realigned right here, right now. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.